0: episode 413 of Cinematary. I'm your host Zach Dennis and I'm here with Michael O'Malley and Andrew Swafford. In today's episode we're going to be doing a rapid fire. What we've watched this week in part one. Rapid fire. (laughs) (laughs) And then part two we're going to continue our young critics watch old movies series from 1958's Elevator to the Gallows. Which sounds much more dour than it really is.
1: There is an elevator that seems like it's gonna go to the gallows at one point.
0: True. But it sounds like, you know, it's gonna be a bad time. It's not really that bad of a time.
1: It
2: it's
0: a good time, I would
2: go it's so far as to fun. say. Yeah. It's very oh, yeah. funny that's a lot.
0: <laughs> it's a super funny movie. Anyway, Spoilers. that's part two nonsense. We'll get to that later. Alright, we're gonna start our rapid fire um, part one. With Andrew, you have two movies you're, you're tossing at us. I do.
1: I'll try to... I'm going to limit myself to five minutes per movie. So let me get my timer pulled up here. When, when
0: I start doing this, that means time's up.
1: Okay. Um, well, I still need <laughs> to be able to time myself here. Uh, but timer on. First movie we're talking about is Event Horizon. The Ooh. Paul W.S. Anderson movie, uh, which I had never seen before. Um, last night, we threw a space party... Uh, me and Jesse did at our house, and for the first part of the space party, we had 2001 playing in the background. And then at a certain point, we decided we wanted to watch Event Horizon. Um, super good, super scary movie. Like, I was not prepared for how intense and scary this movie was gonna get, even <laughs> though I had heard people say that. I, I guess I had not um, taken them as seriously as I should have when, when the people told me this was a very scary movie. Um, it s- stars Sam Neill. And lawrence fishburne um, it's kind of like a 2001 sort of alien-ish thing where we're on a, a big like star freighter like way out in space um, and they are uh, this this band of astronaut scientists uh, who have been sent to go uh, investigate a ship that once went missing potentially in a black hole uh, and it comes back all of a sudden, and we don't really know where it went. So these guys go out there to investigate. Um, and, spoilers, you've probably heard this about the movie if you've heard about Event Horizon at all. Um, the ship went through a portal to hell, and uh, it came back and took some of hell with it. So whenever Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne entered the other ship they have to experience like actual eternal torment <laughs> which uh, <laughs> is a thing that i i really haven't seen on screen all that much you know there's a lot of demon movies there's a lot of like christian flavored horror movies but there aren't a lot that actually capture that like kind of What's the guy's name? Hieronymus Bosch, the painter who, like, paints the, like, big murals of, like, lots of people being tortured or lots of people fucking or something like that. Like, you see stuff like that, uh, like, flashes of it um, in this movie. And apparently it was originally NC-17, and they had to like cut it down um, and like splice some of that stuff together in sort of like this uh, stand Brakhagey like avant-garde way. At points. do we have access um,
2: to that earlier version? Because I would be interested in that. I would love to watch the earlier version, but I,
1: I have no idea. Um, and my take on *Event Horizon*
2: is it's not—it's too tame.
1: Really? It's too tame. Oh man, that was not my experience with it. Uh, <laughs> uh, another thing, though, that I wanted to point out about it for this rapid fire. Uh, recommendation runs out is that um, one way in which it deals with like christian mythology differently than other movies like the exorcist or rosemary's baby or whatever does is that they actually pay attention to the way that angels and other celestial beings are described in the bible which are usually like these kind of nonsensical almost cosmic horror descriptions of like a wheel inside a wheel and stuff like that um, and you see Satan in this movie but he is not a big red giant with horns and a tail or like goat hooves or anything he's like this weird spinning orb with spikes around him who never speaks um, so that's really cool also they they um they kind of conceptualize hell as like a physical place you can go to kind of like the ancient greeks and romans and other cultures thought of it as um, and there's even kind of like a purgatory state that you have to go through in order to get there. But the, the people on the ship don't even know they're in the purgatory state until uh, they're quite a ways into the hell part of it. Um, so, like, truly really original, like, concept and really, like, strong execution. All the production design and special effects look really good here, except for a couple of shoddy, like, CGI things here and there. Um, Sam Neill goes sicko mode in this movie uh it's it's kind of like a uh, in the mouth of madness sort of performance from him um loved it thought it was awesome uh one of the one of the best cosmic horror movies i've ever seen i gotta say um i have 45 seconds left if, if michael you want to chime in about event horizon
2: it's good i hadn't seen it in quite a while like maybe, like eight or nine years and i only watched the first half of it last night because i got tired and went home but um I enjoyed it. It's also, like, for as, as like, gruesome as it is, like, the environment that we watched it in which, like, you know, lots of, like, drunken high people, like, heckling the screen was also, like, very enjoyable as well. Like, it's a movie that works on both wavelengths, right? If you want to take it seriously, uh, it can be spooky. But if you want to be kind of, like, silly about it, it is a Paul W.S. Anderson movie made in the 90s with like a lot of the kind of like silliness that you might associate Mm. with that
1: and it has all the cool paul ws anderson like um architecture like the single point perspective thing um that people may have seen if they have ever seen uh, nadine's fandor video essay about paul ws anderson worth googling if you have not but anyways, I will stop talking about Event Horizon, uh, which is, again, a movie I recommend. But we were going to talk about, also, An Unmarried Woman. Um, this is a very different kind of movie from a very different Paul. Um, this movie is by Paul Mazursky, um, who I've only seen one other movie by. Um, one of my favorite movies, actually, um, Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. Uh, Jesse and I talked about this on the podcast about two years ago, maybe, and... Um, And that movie and An Unmarried Woman both have a lot in common in terms of just both being these uh, big social realism movies that consist almost entirely of people who are in relationships with one another sitting in rooms talking about their relationship. Um, Or in some cases like being in therapy and talking to their therapist about their relationships um and i know that that's not necessarily like untrod ground in the in the world of like cinema especially art house cinema cuz you got people like john Cassavetes or ingmar bergman or 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 people like that um in my view i think that paul Mazursky movies like the conversations play out in a way that feels much more believable than some of those other filmmakers who who do their own kind of like heightened versions of like conversational movies Um, One of the reasons why I really like the way that he handles them is that um, he films them in a way that similar to a thing that I talked about in my video essay about slow cinema, um, where in slow cinema, usually when you're getting like a conversation scene um, where you don't necessarily need a lot of camera movement. You just need to kind of see the people who are talking. The director just sort of puts the camera in the right spot and lets them have the full conversation without editing. Uh, Paul Mazursky does that a lot. Um, he also allows the scenes to play out for a very long time like much longer than most movies do so the conversations end up going in different places like they, they kind of become exploratory and expansive in ways that conversations are usually don't in the movies because they're more like focused on conveying some sort of plot information or, or moving us along from point a to point b um, but anyways i should probably also talk about what this movie's about uh, an unmarried woman Uh, came out in 1978 Um, it is about um, this very wealthy uh, Manhattan woman Uh, she works in like she is at the beginning of the movie she isn't at the end of the movie Um, she works at like an art gallery she's an art curator um, and her husband is just kind of like a suit like a businessman guy and she doesn't really have a ton in common with him Um, and they also fight a lot but she does love him and she has this shared history with him and there's this kind of complex nuanced uh somewhat tender if tense relationship between them Um, and for the first like 30 45 minutes of the movie you're just kind of getting a sense of what normal is like in their relationship and they also have a daughter who's like very intelligent and precocious and like is familiar with, like, second wave feminism in a way that her mom probably wasn't when she was her age. Um, But about, you know, 30, 45 minutes into the movie, the the bomb gets dropped that um, the husband has fallen in love with someone else, and he has actually been in a relationship with this someone else for over a year um, but he tries to pitch it as like well this is just me kind of being true to myself being true to my feelings which is kind of what Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice is that's a like a polyamorous affirming movie and like that opens with somebody confessing to adultery and the other person kind of being okay with it um, in this case, it's a much bigger betrayal, um, and I think that the, the other characters receiving this news is kind of in a much different like mental space to receive that news. Um, and so we kind of see um, this relationship fall apart um, in a way that it doesn't in Bob and Carol. And then the rest of the movie is just her kind of like dealing with the emotional aftermath of divorce and trying to be a single parent and going on dates with various guys. Um, It kind of has a um, their eyes are watching God sort of quality to it, where you kind of see her date all these different guys. And and you're sort of being invited to kind of compare and contrast the positive and negative qualities of all these men. Um, And it ultimately comes down on um, sort of an ambiguous note where you don't necessarily know if she's going to end up with any of these dudes. Um, uh, But you kind of get a sense of her being in sort of the first part of this next act of her life and we're we're getting this snapshot of it um and i thought it was a really beautiful movie i thought all the acting was great uh, paul mazurski um casts a lot of people who aren't particularly like big names they kind of feel like real normal people um and yeah this was another another big recommendation for me unmarried woman it is a a recent criterion movie i believe um I may go double dip in the criterion sale and and get me a copy of this one.
0: Yeah. Shout out to the criterion sale.
1: Shout out to the criterion. All
0: right, Michael, you're up. You got three.
2: I got three. So, uh, I also got my phone set up with the timer so I can, you know, keep myself accountable. Um, but anyway, uh, so my three movies, well, I'll name them one at a time. Um, (laughs) The first one that I want to talk about um, is called The Bad Guys, which was in theaters a few month or two ago, maybe Uh, it's out on DVD now, which is how I saw it. Um, This is the newest uh, DreamWorks animation feature, and uh, it's about these group of animals described simply as the bad guys like everyone just sees them and they think oh it's the bad guys and so it's like a snake uh voiced by mark maron it's a wolf who is yeah actually mark maron is really good at the snake i didn't even (laughs) recognize him as mark maron he just sounds like a cartoon voice which i think is like a great thing that's like a good voice actor right
0: he wasn't acting he wasn't like asking the other cartoon characters so who are your guys who are your guys?
2: When I was growing up, when I was growing up in the in the seventies, man, you know, I was reading Jack Kerouac. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, uh, the movie does open up on uh, like a long conversation between the the snake, voiced by Mark Marion and then the big bad wolf, who is like briefly alluded to as being like the Red Riding Hood, a Little Bad Wolf, um, but there's like no connection at all otherwise in the movie. Um, they're having, like, a long conversation um, about um, what kind of animals they like to eat. And the snake really likes to eat uh, guinea pigs. Um, they're just succulents, apparently. Um, but anyway, <laughs> it's about um, this group. And there's, like, a shark in there, too. It's just all these, like, conventionally threatening animals. Um, and uh, they get caught doing bad things because they're like, they're like a crime syndicate, basically. And they get caught doing bad things because they're bad guys. Um, and then, um, this guy says, it's okay, I can rehabilitate them. Um, and so they decide we're going to pretend to be rehabilitated so then we can get an opportunity to do more bad things, but without the scrutiny that we had before. Uh, and like the plot is, is kind of fine. Like it's like a heist movie and it's not, it, it's, it's just kind of like meat and potatoes, like heist movie. Like it's, it's okay. Um, but what I really liked about this is the animation is great. Uh, and I think it's it's interesting if you look at like uh, the history of computer animation um, in uh, America, and you kind of have the big three uh, uh, historically. Although there's a few others that are significant. You have like Pixar, and then you have Disney, which is now like kind of like a like intertwined with Pixar, uh, and then you have DreamWorks, and all these uh, these these are like the three that have pushed uh, CG animation. And the interesting thing about DreamWorks the whole time through. Is DreamWorks was always doing weird shit. Um and early on that means that their movies looked ugly as crap, right? Um like so many early Dreamworks like Ants or Shrek or whatever, they just look strange and gross. Um and that was kind of interesting in contrast to something like Pixar, which was never trying to do something like that. Um but as time has gone on, and I'm not sure if this is that they have better art direction or the technology has changed enough that they can do this. Like DreamWorks has become like a really interesting visual studio. Um, uh, And I've talked about this before, but like things like the trolls movies uh, or the captain underpants or the boss baby, like all three, all of these movies um, or the Kung Fu Panda. All of these movies are doing really interesting things that are pushing uh, computer animation away from uh, this kind of like Pixar looking realism And, uh, this movie is a really interesting example of that. And, uh, the movie is, if it were a video game, you you would call it cell shaded. I don't know if that's like the term you would use for, for just like straight up animation, but, um, it looks, it's made to look like, um, in, and it, it does this by mixing actual cell animation with 3d animation. Um, it's made to look like, um, uh, like two D, like it's like stuff is made to look two D, um, not like Paper Mario or something, but as if it were drawn almost, uh, and it it looks really cool. Um, my thought always with this, and I've said this before, is uh, I don't know why we wasted this much time with computer animation just so we can eventually loop back around to cartoony animation when we already had that like really slick by the end of the '90s. You know, like if you look at what DreamWorks is doing with um, you know like The Road to El Dorado or something like that. Um, With with their drawn like 2d animation that looked really good or Prince of Egypt and now they've kind of looped back around to something that is like that except with like 3d elements more so Um, But it looks really cool. So uh, the bad guys pretty good looks really cool All right, Uh, I had seven seconds to spare on that one. So I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Um Next. Just there
0: and breathe, you know?
2: Next up. Next up is um, Fire Island, uh, which I watched on Hulu. I don't know if this is a Hulu original or not, but um, it, it, it is. is. Okay. So this Can is I a, say
1: every time I see this movie on Letterboxd, I think it's one of the Fire Festival documentaries?
2: That's what I thought at first, too, which is why I avoided it, because uh, I had watched one of those and I was like, oh, that was okay. I think I know everything I need to know about that. Um, um, but I no this is uh when i actually read into what it is i was inst- instantly intrigued uh this is an adaptation of jane austen's pride and prejudice uh set in contemporary america um at a uh, uh kind of seems like a resorty kind of area called fire island which me being a like a straight man from tennessee i have no window into this subculture but this is apparently like a kind of mecca for um, kind of uh, gay men from New York to go on vacation, um, according to the movie at least, and Wikipedia kind of like halfway backs it up. So, uh, so that that's kind of the milieu. Is that we went to our best sources? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, so in the movie, this is Pride and Prejudice, except it's a bunch of kind of kind of rich ish um, gay men from New York on vacation on Fire Island, and. Um, it uh, is pretty interesting. Like it begins with like it's got a voiceover the whole time through that I think is kind of annoying because it does that thing where you see something happen and then the voiceover explains what just happened. Um, so that's like a negative. But a positive is it starts with you know the famous quote from the beginning of Pride and Prejudice, which is you know it is a truth universally acknowledged that uh, a woman in possession of property um, will be. I mean I'm misquoting it, but basically like if you are a, a woman of means. Uh, you need to marry off right um and it begins by saying the the narrator reads that off and then says but actually and then revises it to describe um like different elements of class and power dynamics within um like the the gay new york scene um which is really interesting and throughout the movie they do this where they take the power dynamics and the like economic um insecurities of the pride and prejudice story and don't really Change what they are on paper, but by making them um, about gay men in relationships and and stuff, it kind of transforms them in an interesting way. Um, and so I thought that was good. Um, it, the movie itself is fine. It's a little bit of a mixed bag for me. Like I said, the uh, the voiceover was kind of irritating to me. Um, also, the guy who his name is not Mister Darcy, but the guy who is playing the D- Mister Darcy role. Um, i mean mr darcy's like a weird character because he's supposed to be kind of like smoldery and sexy uh but he's also supposed to be really pouty and not very pleasant <laughs> and the yeah. pouty and unpleasant part of mr darcy right but like he didn't seem a very like a very i didn't like him and i didn't think the actor was very good who was playing him and i'm not gonna i can't remember what the actor's name is uh, i didn't recognize him um so like there's like some stuff that i don't think like entirely works in this movie uh but there's those other stuff that really do um like, um, for example, the uh, if you've read *Pride and Prejudice* or seen one of the movie adaptations, you know that like a big part of that story is that um, the uh, the Bennets, the central family, only have girls uh, as daughters, right? And so, um, because of the weird uh, elements of like the the gentry in England at the time, this means that the family will lose their Their property if they don't get married off, right? And so there's a lot of like tension about like who's going to marry off uh, these um, their daughters. Um, And in this movie, there is kind of like a found family um, of of these men who all come in vacation at the same house on Fire Island every time. And they find out this time that uh, the woman um, who owns the house is going to lose the house because she's come into financial trouble, and so. Um, there becomes like a tension to pit, like to find uh, another family or like another group that they can then return to Fire Island with um, the next year if they've like entered into a relationship with this person. It's not quite that prosaic. I'm kind of simplifying it a little bit um, but um, anyway, I think it's it's good it's a flawed movie, but like if you're interested in seeing Pride and Prejudice updated in interesting ways, I would recommend it. Um, so. You know, not like a ringing endorsement, but if if that sounds intriguing to you, I think it'll be a fun movie to watch. Twelve seconds to spare on that one.
1: Nice. Yeah, you can't catch me.
2: Um, (laughs) The last one I'm going to talk about. Trying to catch you. The the time the time is trying to catch me.
0: Uh, Old. Yeah. All right, there we wasted twelve seconds. Yeah, this is my
2: twelve seconds. (laughs) So the third and final (sighs) movie I'm going to talk about is also a Hulu original. And it is called Good Luck to You, Leo Grand. Uh, and of all the movies I'm talking about today, this is my favorite of the three. And uh, it is uh, about this woman played by Emma Thompson, um, who's, like, really excellent in this movie. Like, I, Emma Thompson's a really good actress, regardless, but she's...
0: She's, yeah, she's, she's usually good all the she's time. She's usually good she's all great. the time,
2: but this is, like, an exceptionally good role of hers. Um, But so she is a woman who is a widow. Her husband of many years has died, and uh, she used to be a school teacher, um, and she's now retired. And so she's looking at, uh, you know, kind of the the latter years of her life. I don't know how old Emma Thompson is, but, um, you know, in this movie, she's not like at the end of her life, of course, Um, but she is also at the point in which, like, the first. and and kind of primary stage of her life in which she was married and had a career has ended. Um, and she's reflecting back over her life and she comes to the realization that she's unsatisfied with how her life has played out. Um, in part because she has been, um, uh, someone who kind of bought into all the, uh, rules about like sexual conformity and modesty and like, um, these kind of like patriarchal norms um, surrounding like womanhood and female sexuality. And she's come out unsatisfied. You know, I've, I've lived that decades. I'm unsatisfied. And so the movie begins um, with her having hired um, the sex worker who goes by the name Leo grand. uh, And uh, this is going to be kind of her liberatory experience uh, is to have sex with this, uh, this guy. Um, And the movie is structured almost like a play where you have, there's four discrete scenes. Each is one of the times that she meets with this, um, this, this sex worker. And in each scene, she has like a, a a sexual experience that she wants to have. Uh, And they uh, will go through attempting to begin that, but it will like kind of unearth like traumas and insecurities that she has and they'll like talk about them. And that sounds kind of prosaic how I've mentioned it. And it is a little schematic at times um, where there's a format, but I thought that this was actually really good. And um, me being a man in my thirties, I know all about what it's like to be a woman with regrets in my late life. And I can say that this reflects that experience very well, but like all, all joking aside, like it scans as to me, Uh, as something that is fairly nuanced and insightful about um, that perspective and that experience and it is emma thompson's character in particular is really interesting because you see the ways in which she's working through this kind of internalized misogyny that she has had um where uh on the one like she'll be talking about how she feels restricted and how like her experiences with her husband were kind of unsatisfying sexually and stuff like that and then but then she'll start talking about like girls these days have like their, their skirts are too short and I don't really know, you know, and she'll, she'll kind of regurgitate stuff and then have to like process that about like, Oh, that's what I was thinking. Um, At one point in the movie, she runs into a former student of hers in the lobby of the hotel where she's meeting the sex worker and they talk and the student reminds her of this one time that she had like gotten onto the girls in the class about how they were dressing. um, And, uh, Emma Thompson's character has to kind of think over that and and think over okay you know why did I think those things and um, I I don't know it's it's again I'm 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 describing this as kind of like something like formulaic and prosaic and therapeutic in a kind of boring way but I didn't find this movie boring at all um, I think it's like really interesting and like I said Emma Thompson's really great um, the guy who's playing Leo Grand is also good although his character is kind of underdeveloped i think uh they kind of give him a little bit of plot later on and some tensions of his own but i think like the main show here is emma thompson and uh she's really good she really embodies um with her performance just the nuances of someone sorting through all this and just because you want to be liberated isn't the same thing as actually being liberated you actually have to work through a lot of stuff that you've internalized and I, I i thought it was good and interesting so uh it's good it's on hulu so if you go to hulu you can choose between that and uh fire island
1: and the title and the poster of this movie on Letterboxed really makes it seem like a made for hulu movie that i don't want to watch but your description sounds like a good movie
2: yeah the, the filmmaking is not very flashy like i said it's structured almost like a play and it is not filmed like a play but it is not, also not filmed with a lot of like visual cinematic ambition in mind you know it was mostly in a single room there's mostly shot reverse shot with these conversations
0: all right i'm gonna bring us home with my one movie that? um so I saw Official Competition, which I, I guess came out at TIFF last year. I don't remember seeing it, um, but just recently played at the Venice Film Festival and is making the rounds in theaters. Uh, it seems like a movie that will be one of the foreign film options on um, Hulu pretty soon also. But this one stars uh, Antonio Bandares and uh, Penelope Cruz, but it's not an a Amadovar film. Um, instead it is uh so the the plot of the movie is there's this billionaire who you you, at the beginning of the movie he's standing there like looking out onto the city and he's like i've turned 80 years old and i've brought nothing to the world and so his little assistant's like well what what would you like to do and he's like i'd like to build a bridge and then donate it to the state and then make them (laughs) name the bridge after me and he's like okay and then he's like no wait I also want to make a movie. (laughs) He was like, that's what you want to do to like give back to the world. He's like, yes, that's that That'll give back to the world, you know? And so he buy, they buy like this book and he hires, uh, this filmmaker who's played by Penelope Cruz, who is this kind of very eccentric, um, uh, well-known, well-regarded filmmaker, and she. the 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 plot of the movie in the movie is you have these two brothers, um, one who's kind of older, uh, who's a little bit older, who's played by Oscar Martinez, um, and then the the somewhat younger brother uh, who is played by Antonio Banderas. And in the you know the characters in the movie, um, Oscar Martinez's character, he's like very like. Method acting, the acting process, you know, acting is not only it's not like not only a job, it's a calling in an art form, and we should treat it as such. Um, and then you have Antonio Banderas, who is pretty much um, like a ho- Hollywood star. Uh, and so um, the movie is, is like it's a satire of the of of the uh, movie industry. It's constantly just kind of like all of these personalities are pronounced to like the thousandth degree. That, you know, it's absurd and and silly, but like there's something really entertaining about just like how like it kind of just has the line and it goes like six steps over it just because it's just like at one point um, Penelope Cruz, they like walk outside. There's this giant boulder that this crane is holding and she's like, I want you to act the scene where you're in the courtroom while the boulder is above you so that you can feel the tension of the scene <laughs> and so they're like they're like sitting there under the boulder and like and like Antonio Banderas is like really stiff like trying to read the lines but he keeps like looking up at this like 5-ton boulder above him <laughs> um, and then something happens that's very funny with the boulder that I will not. I don't, don't want to. You have to kind of watch the movie to to get into it. But it's a lot of that kind of stuff where, you like you're not you're never watching them film the movie. You're watching them rehearse the scenes of the movie, and they're and she's making them do just these like insane things to go along with just you know, with just uh uh you know talking going through the movie is like a rehearsal. Like at one point they're like destroying awards. Like it's, it's, it's a really absurd movie. I really enjoyed it because it constantly is just kind of insane. Um, you also really have, like, this this whole thing between the Oscar Martinez character and the Banderas character where they're, like, because they're these polar opposites, you know. One is very, like, into the craft of acting and one is just like, yeah, I'm, like, getting my paycheck and doing stuff. Um, they're constantly, like, competing with one another. And, like, you get to this one point in the movie where they just start – where they're, like – they get into an acting challenge against one another. And so, like, there's this really pivotal moment where Antonio Banderas' character gives, like, this really long emotional monologue. And, like, everybody's really emotional about it. And, like, it like kind of, like, halts everything for a day. And then... You have the other guy who then does the same thing in a different fashion because they're like trying to compete with who will believe that this this thing that I'm telling everybody is real and can like do like who can act the bet the best and so they're like doing these things that's completely like disrupting the whole emotional state of the production to like one up one another because they're trying to compete. Um, it's a really silly movie. I I was thoroughly entertained the entire time. Um,
1: it sounds almost like a Christopher Guest sort of thing.
0: It is. It's like Christopher Guest, um, with like a little slice of like, it's a little it's a little punchier than the, than a Christopher Guest movie because it's also like, it has a it kind of has like a cut to it that Chris Christopher Guest movies are satirizing stuff but also you know pretty soft with it. Um, this one is a lot. Is a lot. Uh, it bites a little bit more. And then, the, like for whatever reason, it has these like little interludes where um, Penelope Cruz, like when one of the interludes, she's uh, she's like hooking, she's like hooked up or something with. Um, one of the female stars and like you don't see them having sex but like the she's like the the female star is standing in front of penelope cruz and she's like doing this tiktok dance and they never say anything she's just doing the tiktok dance and penelope cruz <laughs> is like smoking a cigarette like watching her and then it just cuts to another scene and I was, you're like what the fuck was that and then it cuts to another interlude later in the movie where like penelope cruz is trying to like figure out for herself how to floss and so she's like sitting there like doing this and then she's like and, she, and you can, she's like the whole time she's like Ugh. like like it's like like she's straining to like make it like to do the floss thing. it's fucking it's just so fucking crazy um no, but I, re- I really liked it. I think Banderas is especially really good because he like really leans into being like the asshole Hollywood star and just kind of has fun with it. Um, the other guy is good too. Like he, like, you'll go to his house and he like has this study with all of these like very analog um, devices and he has like an orange cat that he just kind of sits there and like while he's listening to his his like record and his wife. Um, is like this children's, it like he's also really funny because he's just like over the top. Like this is what an intellectual pretentious person is like. And he like just kind of makes fun of that at the same time. So um, it's really good. I, uh, I recommend if you, if it's playing near you or um, it pops up on streaming to check out official competition, cause it's really funny. Um, and I think it kind of throws you for a loop, especially like in the, uh, the back end of the movie, it just starts doing stuff that you're just like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but it's always just it's like it's constantly like this pissing contest between these two guys um, which I like nonsense and pissing contests
1: have you ever seen the movie um, Chevalier I think is what it's called is a Greek movie by a collaborator of Yorgos Lanthimos about like a bunch of dudes on a ship just like who keep making up competitions for them to compete with one another in including actual like pissing and dick measuring contests um, so maybe I don't know
0: I'm just yeah I'm in the genre of, of, of dick measuring contests yeah I've watched too much jackass that's what happens um, alright I think we did pretty good How do, yeah, yeah. 35 minutes a that's shorter
1: part one for us you
0: know Yeah. we've, we've been right.
1: going longer
0: Well, we're going to head into a break and then we'll be back talking about Elevator to the Gallows after this. And we're back with part two of episode 413 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to continue our young critics watch old Movies series with 1958's Elevator to the Gallows. Uh, directed by Louis Maul from a script by Maul and Roger Namir. Uh, the film stars Jean uh, Moreau, Maurice Rene, Joris Pajoli, uh, Yori Burton, and Jean Wall. <laughs> That's funny, Jean Wall. Um, Florence, uh, he's a basketball player named Jean Wall. Uh, Florence is married to the wealthy arms dealer Simon Carala but is carrying on a torrid affair with one of her husband's employees, Julian. Julian daringly climbs into Simon's office on a... just as a rope, it's a grappling hook, baby. Kills him and leaves unnoticed. <laughs> um... Mall adapted the stylistic and thematic motifs of classic American film noir to a French context while at the same time introducing new cinematic and storytelling innovations that would influence others. This combined with the film's modern settings, its iconic new generation of actors, and its cutting-edge jazz score have led many to cite uh, the film as the first French New Wave film. Um... Mall cast Moreau after seeing her in the Paris stage production of Tennessee Williams' *Cat on a Hot Tin Roof*. She had already been in a number of films, but her role in this film is often considered her breakthrough. Mall filmed her without the heavy, without the use of heavy makeup and extreme lighting that previous directors had demanded. Scenes of Moreau wandering down the uh, Champs Elysées uh, at night was, were shot on fast film from a baby carriage using only available light from the street and shop windows. Uh, A devoted fan since his early teens, Maul was at the time listening to a lot of Miles Davis. He even included a Miles Davis record sleeve in the room of the teenage girl Veronica uh, for a short engagement, Uh, though... Or then, then by coincidence, while he was editing the film, Davis came to Paris to play in a club, through his f- friend, the writer and musician Boris Vian, who was then the director of the jazz department at the Phillips Record Company. Maul arranged to meet with Davis to discuss his composing the soundtrack for the film. At first, the musician was reluctant because he didn't have his usual musicians with him, but Maul managed to convince him. He showed Davis the film twice, and they agreed on the parts where they felt music was needed. Taking advantage of the one night of uh, of his one night off, David Davis. Had From the club where he was performing, Maul rented a sound studio in Paris. Here, Davis uh, drummer Kenny Clark and three French session players worked from 10 at night until 5 the next morning, improvising the music while watching each scene of the film loop around, eventually recording the whole score in one night. Uh, I couldn't find any uh, contemporary to 1958 reviews of the film, but there is one uh, Ebert in 2005 when the movie got a re-release in theaters. He observed that Moreau's face when Florence is uh, pondering Julian's whereabouts, quote, is often illuminated only by the lights of the cafes and shops that she passes. At a time when actresses were lit and photographed with care, these scenes had a shock value and influenced many films to come. He further argued that Louis and Veronique, uh, Veronique, Uh, were a precursor to the young couple in Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless from 1960. Um, Yeah, so on that note, let's talk a little bit about Elevator to the Gallows. I'm going to start it with you, Michael, since I believe this was your pick for young critics for this decade.
2: It was, yeah. And I knew nothing about this movie except that it had a Miles Davis score. And so I, being a a Miles Davis fan, thought, I want to see the French movie... With the Miles Davis score, uh, and I have now, and it was good, uh, and I was surprised that the reason I thought it was good was not simply because of the Miles Davis score, which by the way is very spare. There's I, I, there's less than half an hour of Miles Davis music on this in this movie. Uh,
0: he made it in one night, so you know I give him credit.
2: <laughs> you know he's got records later on that are like ninety minutes that he made in one night. So, you know who's You know, I I guess everyone grows up. Right. Um, But uh, anyway, the Miles Davis music is very good uh, and we can maybe talk about that later on. But what I liked about this movie that I wasn't expecting was that it is funny and it strikes me as it is as I was watching it, I was thinking this feels like a movie that Joel and Ethan Cohen love. And I don't know if that's the case, mm-hmm. but it, oh, they pl- have to it plays out exactly like yeah. you would exactly. imagine like a Coen Brothers movie. So, like, you know, the guy goes and murders his boss um, and then he's leaving. But he
1: does it because the boss's wife pays him. Yeah. It was like a Fargo yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The,
2: the boss's wife pays him, too. Um, and as he's leaving, he notices that he's made one mistake, which is that he's left his, uh his, the, the. Grappling he hook. Gra- he left the grappling, grappling hook. hook, and so he goes. And then, in in trying to clean up this one mistake, he gets stuck in an elevator, and that throws off the whole plan. And then the movie spirals well, out. He also there.
1: crucially leaves the keys in his car while his car is running. Yeah, that was right? stupid. How how Just turn like, off the car? much of a stupid criminal is this guy? Yeah, So like, this is like a
2: classic Coen Brothers like <laughs> dude gets in over his head because he tries to commit a crime and then goofs it up and then things spiral out of control. And he spends two-thirds of this movie trapped in that elevator, and we see him try to escape the elevator unsuccessfully several times, and in the end, he just sits in there smoking cigarettes, but then when he finally escapes, he has to go clean up the cigarettes.
1: Uh, He's sitting in there smoking cigarettes and, like, drawing on, like, a piece of paper in a way that looks like what a possessed kid in a horror movie (laughs) has, like, put in their journal.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and... I mean, it eventually spirals out so that like some, some uh, some bad stuff goes down. Uh, you know, as it does if you've seen Fargo or whatever. But anyway, I had heard you know this is a kind of proto French New Wave film, and I guess from that I was expecting something different. I was expecting it to be fairly straight faced, even though I know that not all French New Wave films are serious. Uh, you know, in fact, Breathless is very playful and. And stuff like that. But I was not prepared for this to be like a comedy of errors for half of it. And I really liked it.
1: I was um, surprised at how straightforward it was in terms of the filmmaking compared to some of the later French New Wave movies. Like, Breathless, you're right, is playful. And part of the playfulness is like the weird editing stuff they do. And Agnes Varda does the same thing in like Cleo from Nine to Seven and La Pointe Court and, and movies like that. Um, but this mostly like plays out like like it looks like a very straight crime movie, but just the events that you're watching are kind of ludicrous, um, um, which is which is interesting. Like compared to that Miles Davis score, which is kind of serious and sultry. And Michael, you were talking to me last night about how it, it feels like the the shtick that people do when they're making fun of like the the smoky noir where the guy is sitting in his detective office and you're hearing like saxophone playing and stuff like that and I I don't know if this was like th- one of the inspirations for that to become popular or if it was playing off of something
2: um, yeah yeah because I mean a lot of those old film noirs don't have jazz scores they have like classic Hollywood scores and so I'm not sure where that trope came from but it's in this movie it might be from yeah, this yeah maybe
1: This is, um, I think, like a very accessible, both a very accessible noir and a very accessible French New Wave movie. Um, If I was to teach a film studies class, which I've never gotten a chance to do, unfortunately, um, I would probably teach this as like the French New Wave movie we do, or like a French New Wave movie we do, because I could see students like really tracking with it in a way that I don't know if they would with something like. Breathless or Le Pointe Court or 400 Blows or something like that like those movies can be kind of dry in a way you know
2: well and like specifically with Breathless and a lot of the Godard movies um, before he gets real weird those are those are much more complex uh, in their relationship to the kind of classic Hollywood movies that they're inspired by whereas this is just a few clicks away from like you mentioned like it's it is definitely like it's clearly its own thing but it's also clearly much more clearly rooted in that sort of stuff it's less ironic and detached than like a Godard, like breathless or um some of those other ones he made in the 60s and i i think maybe that's why i responded to it so well is that i was expecting it to be uh more, more, de- more detached and more uh, like conceptual than it is, but it's really enjoyable just on its face, uh, irrespective of its relationship to, uh, uh, you know, American genres. Like it, you know, I, I don't know. Like a lot of those, a lot of those French New Wave dudes were were film critics, and I have no idea what um, the background of Louis Malle is, but he doesn't strike me as having the same sort of like I've seen all the movies and I'm now going to drolly riff on them sort of sensibilities that some of the like French new Wave films have, uh, is he seems to be approaching this much more from a, he just seems like a fan.
1: He does. He was like, he's enjoying participating in this genre, right?
0: He does. Um, I I, I was, I was surprised just how, um, it, it feels like a very seamless movie. It just kind of... It very much, like, scoots along um, at a very, like, steady pace. And, is, you know, it gets a little bit... Um, it kind of slows a little bit down when you're in the part where the young couple is with the German couple at the motel because they're just kind of... It's just kind of them hanging out and, like, drinking. And the 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 guy in the young couple is just so um, irritable to be around
1: (laughs) (laughs) the guy offers him champagne and he basically says like i'm too much of a leftist to drink champagne like have you (laughs) you realized the horrible things that are happening in the world i can't drink champagne at this moment i'm not a champagne socialist the whole like interaction
2: between the the german couple and this couple is really funny to me until it becomes like really tense and kind of like serious but it She, like, all of a sudden
1: is like, well, the only thing there is to do is for us to kill ourselves. And he has no... We don't have a conversation about that at all. He's like, okay. That's another
2: thing, too. They, like, pay that up later in the movie where they, like, uh, they've, like, attempted to overdose on sleeping pills. And then they wake up. And they're like, oh, shit. (laughs) Jean
0: Moreau's character walks in. And they're they're just kind of, like, suddenly, like, "Uh," and, like, he's in the bathroom. And she's like, you idiots. Like, he couldn't even...
1: They barely acknowledge her. (laughs) I would be like who are you how did you find us what do you want
0: no there, there are a lot of the humor just because they're they're so stupid um, on their own and then like the way that they interact with people because he seems to hate every person who has ever lived on this earth <laughs> <laughs> and in and and, like the German guys like trying to start conversation and like because they're pretending to be the guy who did the hit on the on the boss earlier um, he's like talking to him about like his time in the service or whatever. And he's just like, he's like, well, did you see any Germans, you know, there? And he's just like, no, I didn't see any Germans. And he's like,
2: are war you One? sure?
1: <laughs> you know,
0: like, do you know what the war was? And yeah. he was just like, he's like, no, I didn't see it. And he's just like, oh, okay, well that's weird. Oh, go ahead. Andrew. Go ahead,
1: Michael.
2: I was just going to bring up, I think the politics of this movie are kind of interesting because I don't know if you mentioned it before just now, but the guy who kills, the boss is a veteran of uh, a war. I don't know if it's is it definitely World War
0: One. It's um, it was the Indochina. Oh, um, that's right. Yeah, they mentioned French that. War. They mentioned and, that, um, uh, and uh, Algiers.
2: Right. And so like, that is like hovering over the movie the whole time. Like multiple people mentioned like the conflicts over that, and then like the beginning of the movie has the boss who, like we mentioned, is an arms dealer, like talking about his profits and stuff like that, and so there is something interesting going on and I'm not sure if I can like put my finger on it partially cause I'm not, this is not my forte, like this like part of uh, world history, but there is like at least like surface level, so- something interesting going on where, you know, the veteran kills the arms dealer has of course like profited off of um, the, 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 the trauma and death that he has experienced uh, and now he is an employee of this man, um, and also like, uh, cheat like his wife, like the arms dealer's wife is cheating on him with this guy. But then it all like goes awry. I don't know. Like, what did, did you guys have any thoughts about like what's going on with the politics?
1: I mean, I'm glad you brought it up. This was the same thing I was going to bring up too because I remember the there's a conversation that happens before the guy kills the, his boss where they're kind of talking about the seriousness of business versus the seriousness of war. Um, and it. I guess I wasn't necessarily thinking at the time. I didn't fully understand what this business was. Like, who is this boss? What is he getting rich off of? But knowing that he gets rich off of arms manufacturing kind of puts the whole thing in a slightly different light. Um, I wonder if there's something going on here about, like, the... Evolving nature of colonialism because France is very much like they—they they were in there with like you know the the colonial powers. Of, one of the big uh, the, guys. Yeah, one of, of the big the, ones. Of Among the century, yeah. pre- previous, um, and like colonialism is still a thing, but it's not necessarily like military colonialism. A lot of the, in a lot of the cases, it's more like economic colonialism. Like we're exploiting countries that have like sweatshop practices and stuff like that um and i don't know if the movie necessarily is that interested in like exploring that but it is kind of there as and and like almost every character has some sort of connection to the recent military conflict as well um whether that be the boss the the guy who's stuck in the titular elevator to the gallows or the uh the anti-champagne socialist dude um so i don't know other thoughts about that
2: i don't know i mean it is i mean the the moment when this is all happening like you know the 1950s i mean the 1950s are like in terms of colonialism like one of the turning points right that's when so many countries in africa become liberated um like algeria like all that sort of stuff is really heating up um to my knowledge um and then Uh, there's stuff going on in Vietnam too, right. That like presages like the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, Viet Cong and like communist like revolution there. And then America's, uh, aggression toward that. And like, I don't know, like I, again, like this is not my forte in terms of world history, but, um, this seems like, you know, even if the, it, it it strikes me as interesting, even if the movie, itself wasn't intended as like a commentary on these things but like simply by existing in this milieu uh, it like unavoidably um comments on it and it kind of strikes me as um you know in the in the same way that i mean, this is maybe this this movie is a little bit more intentioned on on this than uh elevator to the gallows made perhaps but uh it it strikes me in like um like, like Burn After Reading, if we're bringing up the Coens, right? And that's another kind of movie in which, like, you have plots kind of, like, spiral out of control. Um, that movie came out in 2008. Um, and, you know, you could not have made a movie involving the U.S. military and not have dealt with, like, some of those issues of surveillance or whatever, even if that, that movie itself is not, like, deeply interested in, like, let's say, like, the Iraq War or... Um, you know we're in Afghanistan or like any of those like actual conflicts but by simply existing as a plot involving like military um, and and government at the time it is going to feel adjacent to those things um, and I wonder if a similar thing is happening here
1: yeah I mean burn after reading definitely has a, a feeling of like um, there's a there's a games critic who refers to, uh, he has this term, the cock-up cascade, where, like, you do one thing badly in a video game and then, like, ten more things, like, just kind of domino on top of that. Um, where, like, the the nature of, like, military conflicts now, and I guess always, but can just be, like, so insanely complicated that, like, peop- a single person cannot wrap their head around, like, all the various angles at play. Um so I wonder if there's a similar thing around Elliot of the Gallows where you can kind of read the events that are not about military conflict as being somewhat like secretly about military conflict, but I don't actually know what that reading would be.
0: Yeah. It also seems kinda of almost a little uh, inherent vicey where it's like there's kind of stuff happening in the background that it never like like out like engages on like a direct level, but it's but it's but the outside kind of stuff that's happening in the background is directly affecting the stuff like in the foreground you know um because it feels like yeah there's a lot of socio-political um ideas and and emotions from the from this time period at play but it never again it never like outwardly engages with them outside of like these kind of side conversations between like um, Julian and, and the boss before he kills them, or this German couple and the young couple. So you kind of get a sense of where everybody's sitting at at this period of time, but nobody ever really directly engages where, like, France is at in this moment.
2: I think it's, like, an interesting thing. Like, there's a lot of American counterculture media that is not directly about, like, the kind of, like, activist vanguard stuff, right? Like... Um you know, a lot of like the, you know, what we would consider like, you know, hippie music or like kind of like the rock and roll kind of stuff. Like it's not really, it is rarely like directly engaging with like the war in Vietnam or, you know, whatever, any number of, you know, like a civil rights movement or like any other, like there's a few, um, you know, like some of Bob Dylan's music or like maybe a few scattered like Beatles songs or like, Credence Clearwater Revival, or you know, like, but for the most part, like, w- what makes those part of the counterculture movement um, uh, is the them capturing the sense of alienation and disaffectedness um, that has been caused by those things. You know, like, uh, at least in America, you know, there's a major rift in terms of what the American like government apparatus is doing and how. Like the youth culture felt at the time um and like that rift kind of describes what at least for like people who weren't like you know you know uh you know marxist activists or whatever which was like a huge contingent of of the counterculture but like a lot of the media represents like the alienation um of that like the alienation from like the world around you as you no longer feel a part of um, whatever, like, movement uh, is is animating your society, and there's a, I, I feel like that there's a similar thing that goes on with the French New Wave, um, and I mean, like, people like uh, Jean-Luc Godard get, like, explicitly political eventually, um, you know, in his mid and late 60s stuff, but, like, early on, like, there's a lot of, like, you know, I mean, we use the word, like, ennui, the, the French word, to describe this kind of, like, sad alienation, and I think that you know, it's not insignificant that that kind of thing in film is happening at the same time that, you know, a lot of these, uh, you know, kind of global like colonialist orders are um, shifting and changing. And in some ways, like, you know, youth movements feel disconnected from that. Um, And I mean, like, if you go back to stuff like uh, The Stranger, right, like Albert Camus and like a lot of those existential literature that informed, uh, like the French new wave, like those are very political, right? Like, uh, the stranger involves, um, like a murder, um, with an Algerian, uh, and like a lot of that, like, um, stuff. And I think a lot of the legacy of those is more of the kind of interior stuff, um, you know, in an emotional landscape that that describes and like, how do we create meaning out of systems that we've become alienated from, but that's like, kind of inseparable from the like political context in which it occurred in
1: this movie is not the movie i'm about to mention is not embroiled in any sort of like military milieu but what you're describing about the the alienation and the ennui that these characters experience reminds me the most of a vivre savi uh the jean-luc Godard movie with uh, anna karina where she's just kind of like bouncing around the city having sad conversations with people and eventually becoming a prostitute right there's um there's like a political angle to it even though it is mostly about the emotional experience of people living through like this culture in this period of history right Uh,
0: it reminds me a lot of um just thinking about kind of uh, uh, how it's handling the the zeitgeist of the moment. It reminds me a lot of like um, simp- somewhat early Kurosawa films, as well as some Ozu films, where just like dealing with the zeitgeist of post uh, World War Two Japan, and just kind of like the the cultural um, feeling of. Not only um, how people collectively felt, but like different roles in society and how like Western um, Western thought and Western business and things like that start to intersect with like the Japanese values that came beforehand, um, and just kind of how like it's never, especially in 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 Ozu's movies, it's never like they never expound on that, but it's always yeah, something it's that's sitting backdrop. there. Yeah. but it's always there just like sitting in with these characters as they kind of go about you know as they think about their the, you know their children or their generations come after like they're thinking about how they were brought up compared to how the, the these these other generations were brought up and to me a lot of the characters um, especially the young characters in this kind of feel like a reaction to that like the the, the leftist no champagne kid is kind of like this um, you know he's somebody who hasn't had to come up against uh, you know a lot of these conflicts and, and probably just got the you know the tail end if anything of like World War two so he's kind of in this like post-war like that kind of stuff is not permeating him as much as, as like some of the older characters. So it's kind of interesting to see how how he, you know, how he interacts with these characters compared to how a lot of the older characters, you know, that's why the the whole interaction between him and the German couple is so interesting because the German couple are kind of coming at it. Like, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, you know, interesting thing that we're here in France in the, in the first place, to be honest.
1: Um, If we could completely switch gears, Um, I want to talk about sort of the structure of this movie and and the various characters all sort of like spinning off in different directions Uh, because there's not really a protagonist here. You think it's going to be the guy who kills his boss because that's who we're following for the beginning of the movie. But once he gets stuck in the elevator, we're really not following him anymore. We're kind of checking back in with him. And instead, we are following this young couple who, like we've said, just this feels like... A version of the breathless couple. Um, and then we're, we're following some like police and detectives as they're trying to figure out what's going on. We're also following uh, Jean Moreau who is like distraught because she thinks that the guy who she, like her lover who she's having an affair with um, that the guy who kills his boss, she paid him to kill her husband and she thinks that he ran off with a younger woman after doing that. Um, and like, her scenes I think are really interesting because almost nothing happens in them. She's just kind of walking through the streets. She's walking through very fast traffic, <laughs> very slowly, like just eyes straight ahead, not even really registering the danger that is like around her. Um, and then later you see her walking in the rain, and there's like beautiful close-ups of her kind of like sobbing with like rain streaking down her face as well um it's a really like interesting just thing to put in this movie and a really good performance too i think
0: and it's very much uh complemented by um the miles davis score which which we talked about a little bit like it is almost cliche now to like have like this kind of jazz score while like you're walking through the rain like emotional but at the same time, you watch like this movie and you're like, yeah, this damn, this is really this is about like this is it.
1: Yeah. When I'm sad walking through the rain, I want to imagine sad Miles Davis music playing like it's a cliche for a reason. It works.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's it, in like and it just kind of accentuates. It really does like accentuate the moment because yet like like um I was mentioning in the notes, like you don't have typical um like Hollywood lighting. You know, it's a lot of you're just you have the street lamps, you have the the coffee shop. Shop. so she's just kind of wandering through these street the streets she says like this this several, this this kind of just this complete like discombobulated look on her face because she's just trying to figure out and you have the the kind of inner monologue going um with the jazz music in the background it is it's very like french film but at the same time it's very effective yeah.
1: oh it's french film french
0: as yeah.
2: fuck yeah yeah <laughs> i also think okay so um We've already talked about a fair deal of the plot, so, you know, I don't know if it's even worth saying spoilers, but, like, at the very end of the movie, um, you get that scene where um, her name is Florence, is that right? Am I remembering that right? Which character? The the woman who pays the dude to Um, kill her husband. John Rowe. Probably? She's being being talked to by, um, is it the cops? Are the cops talking to her? And they say that she's going to get a bigger sentence than the guy who actually killed her husband. Right? Is that.
1: I'm a little confused because the cops think different things are happening at different points of the movie. The
2: cops aren't great. Oh, you're, 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 I'm, I'm misremembering, but they think that. She has been involved in killing the German couple, though, right? Like, yeah. she and... Because
1: yeah. uh, originally, okay, yeah, they find, the only thing they find is the German couple dead and this dude's car just, like, sitting outside. Right. Um, sorry, I, was miss, yeah. I
2: was misremembering. But, like, still, regardless, mm-hmm. um, so they think that uh, she and um, the elevator guy uh, have killed this German couple, and they tell her that she's going to get a harsher sentence than he... Is like she's gonna get like ten years and he's gonna get five or something like that. Like I, I don't remember the exact numbers.
1: Are you, you guys are remembering this? I do not remember this detail. I also Dang, maybe it's not what talking. <laughs> I yeah, no they, said, talking.
0: they said they said they uh, said they said she's gonna get like twenty years and he was gonna get ten, but he would get off on right. five. And
1: I'm wondering. Oh, is it because she's the one who paid him? Like it wasn't necessarily his decision to do I it. I guess
0: that's the rationale they're going with.
1: Maybe
2: I and but but there's something like like her arc is really interesting um because as you guys said there's like hardly anything that happens to her like she thinks like she she's under the mistaken impression that this dude has run off without her and she's out of the picture out of his picture now um and then the cops um you know she she gets wrapped up with the cops and then she's gonna get you know uh slapped with this harder harsher sentence than him like there's something about like the absurdity of that like that she has been operating under, like, a mistaken assumption about what has happened. Um, and in the end, there's just this kind of, like, seemingly capricious, like, disparity in terms of, uh, you know, who is getting what at the end. I don't know. Like, that was kind of a interesting, like, stinger at the end of the movie for me.
1: It Her role in this whole narrative is interesting because you don't really see the part of the story where she's, like, negotiating all this. The movie cold opens on him, like, calling her and saying, I love you, right before he's about to do the thing. And so she has very little, like, agency in the movie because the time that she would have had agency has already passed by the time we're in it. Um, but, I don't know. Another... Just another thing to remark upon with this movie before we leave it. Um, I think the cinematography is really beautiful, especially like the shadows. Um, like that, that dark nighttime cinematography that Zach was talking about when she's walking through the rain. You have all this like um, light from street lamps and, and car headlights and windows and things like that just lighting her. Um, there's also a part where when Elevator Guy... Is, is stuck in the building and, like, the lights are on the fritz or something and it's kind of slowly uh, fading on and off in the section of the building that he's in. Um, and when he eventually, like, goes, um, tries to, like, take a panel out from the floor of the elevator and he's trying to climb down, just that, like, big black pit <laughs> that is, like, the elevator shaft is really good. Uh, we were also talking before um, the show started about the scene... I guess there's there's two scenes that do this. There's the interrogation scene, and there's the the dark room scene, at the very end, where you just have characters standing in these like black voids. um, That looks. It looks like, like it's
0: almost like a black box theater because it's just the light is just on them. So you just see the three characters and like the table, but it's not like a, you know, it's not like a cop procedural or whatever, where you see like the window and like the door and they're like sitting in there. Like, no, it just looks like this black void. And these three characters are like the only ones inhabiting it.
2: I thought like the scenes with the elevator guy, um, were really interesting just in terms of how they're staged because there is like, they're, 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 they're wordless. And it's just him frantically like, Uh, scurrying around the very small space of the elevator to try to find something um, to get himself out. Uh, And he's stuck between floors, so he's, like, pried the door open, but he can't, like, get through, like, the little, like, gap where the floor, like, where the the actual, like, like floor is. And then, like you just mentioned, Andrew, he, like, pulls a panel out from the floor and looks down there um, and... I don't know. Like there, there's something about elevator shafts, and this is true regardless of the movie. But ele- elevator shafts are really unnerving because um, you're you're seeing the guts of something that has been designed so that you can't see it. Because elevators are really kind of scary things because you're just suspended in this. In I know people who won't take elevators because they're right. freaked out by them. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know he like pulls out the floor and looks, and you see like the cable that is like holding the elevator there. And like you mentioned, like the huge just pit of a shaft, um, and uh, I don't know, like those sequences almost struck me as, like, um, like, uh, like, like Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times, or maybe something like Tati, or something like that, where you have these huge um, machineries of modern technology. And the human person just is is kind of trapped in that environment um, at and at its mercy, which is is kind of cool. Like and and the way it's shot, I think, really accentuates that. Like where you know the the abstraction of an elevator shaft really comes through, um, and it's just these kind of pieces of machinery that are too big to for a single person to manipulate, and then a hole. That's all that it is. And there is
1: kind of like a cold. Sort of um, clinical feel to the way the movie looks, even though the events of the movie are are really over the top and the emotions of the movie for the characters are often over the top. Like, you don't have a lot of moving camera except the the parts where Jean Moreau's walking through the rain, really. Like, for the most part, we're just kind of like stuck in these spaces with people. I could definitely see that. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty wordless movie throughout, too. I mean, once he's in the elevator, he doesn't really have any lines till the end of the movie. Jean Moreau doesn't really have any lines until the end of the movie. Even, like, when she has conversations with people, um, the audio, like, fades it out. Like, we're just listening to Miles Davis and we can't hear what she's saying to, like, some random, um, like, uh, baggage handler that she, like, walks by on the street. Um, And then when you have have the, the couple, the couple on the run the The woman is speaking quite a bit, but the guy just like doesn't respond to her most of the time. Um, so it there's kind of a it, a really heavy reliance on like visual language um, to convey this movie's ridiculous plot.
0: Any any anything? Any last thoughts as we uh, we head out of the elevator to the gallows? We take.
2: Have you guys seen any other uh, films by this director? I've seen my general. See, I've never Andre. seen that
0: one. I feel like I got to see that one. Whoa,
2: whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. I know you said this earlier in the podcast, but for whatever reason, those dots didn't connect to me until just now. Yeah. No it's the yeah. Andre guy. Uh, you Ooh. know what? Uh, I've seen Arvois de as well. Yeah, um, is that good? It is really good. It's horribly sad. Um, I mean, it's, it's a Holocaust movie, um, basically. So, um, but yeah. It's good, man. Okay, so I've seen several of these. Never mind. Um, question answered.
1: Um, there was a thing I was going to say, if I can remember. Oh, um, I was watching this with Jesse today, and she was wondering, like, at what point did, did France stop doing the guillotine thing? Um, and we looked it up, because uh, there was a guillotine on the cover of the the letterbox poster. Um, and... It you know the title also mentions the gallows. We don't really know what's gonna happen to this guy once he gets caught. But we know he does get caught. Apparently, um, the French were still doing the the guillotine until like the eighties or the nineties. Uh, oh so it's very possible this guy does just get his head chopped off <laughs> at the end of this movie. True <laughs> uh, revolutionary. Yeah. People like go
0: and pick up McDonald's and go walk to the square to watch somebody get beheaded. Oh man!
2: That'd be an I image. Hope not. Man, yeah. I wonder what the last like beheading was in France.
0: Before you die, just know you're the last beheading in the history of France. Yeah. <laughs> you think this is? Bad, you're, 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 That's uh, really cool. <laughs> the Last one.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> like those people who don't want us to forgive student loan debts. Like I had to pay it. You should too. <laughs> I so, to be bad you everyone too. their Bill's heads character. Cuts off. <laughs>
0: Uh, all right. Well, um, "Elevator to the Gallows" it is available. Criterion has it, and I believe it's available on HBO Max as well. So um, go watch it if you if you can. Um, that'll. It's a good time. It's a good movie. Um, but that'll wrap up our episode. Um, uh, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at handle at Cinematary and on Letterbox at letterbox.com slash Cinematary where we uh, post a list of all the movies that we talked about in this episode next week oh real quick um, thank you to our patrons patreon.com slash Cinematary if you'd like to support the show thank you to Cam Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham Candace Sisson Ron Hayes Teresa Marsathi Titus Arthur and Ty- Tyler Chandler thank you so much for your patronage um next week we're gonna be continuing our young critics watch old Movies" series with faster pussycat kill kill
1: we're doing some russ meyer we're bringing i'm gonna russ say it like, with that with that
0: much emotion next week also faster pussycat kill kill
1: <laughs> there's an exclamation point zach
0: yeah um, actually two
1: exclamation points after pussycat are, and no there are 3 there's 3 Faster, calm, there's pussycat, a pussycat l- exclamation point kill exclamation point kill
0: exclamation point i'll i'll work on it all week yeah. to get to that to get to that point um if you have not caught our series so far head over to com or go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts wherever you listen to stuff um you can listen to the episodes and then also head to the website to see what we got coming up next cuz after uh, After this, after Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, we have one, two, three, four, five left. So um, check them out and, uh, yeah, catch up. We've had some good ones so far. I just, you know, had people talking to me about Bicycle Thieves and Treasure Sierra Madre. Enjoy those episodes. So get to it. Anyway, until next week. Thank you for listening. (laughs)